On today's episode of The Door Report, powered by Alaco Finewood Floors, unfortunately, Billy Derrick is unable to join episode 139 of TDR. He's had a pretty hectic week, so you're stuck with me, Will Byram, solo for today's episode, recapping the last week, week and a half in Vanderbilt Athletics. We're going to get into some Vanderbilt basketball and their losses to both Florida and South Carolina to bring their losing streak to three games, hopefully can be stopped against Georgia at home on Saturday at 5 p.m. Also, students are allowed back for that game in Memorial Gym, and we're also going to have a quick recruiting update throughout this episode. Where does Vanderbilt sit across the country? Alongside, where do they sit in the SEC, and what does that tell us about the future for Clark Lee, Barton Simmons, and the rest of the staff? That and much more coming up next on episode 139 of The Door Report, powered by Alaco Finewood Floors. Let's ride. At Vanderbilt, it's Tim Corbin in the Vandy Boys, Jerry Stackhouse on the hardwood, and Clark Lee on the gridiron. Nashville, it's time to sit back, relax, grab a cold one, and enjoy the show. The Music City is our state, and West End is where we rock. You're listening. To the Door Report, the premier Vanderbilt podcast for fans who bleed black and gold. Commodore Nation, anchor down. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back into The Door Report, presented by Alaco Finewood Floors on this fine January 28th Friday, ladies and gentlemen, the weekend. As always, we are presented by Alaco Finewood Floors, and we have a lot to get to this episode. Unfortunately, I'm unable to be joined by my co-host, Billy Derrick, who's had a pretty crazy week alongside with me, which is why we're getting this out a little bit late to you on Friday, but had to get this out after the two performances by the Commodores since our last podcast, losing to both Florida and South Carolina with a big, I know, big, Uh, matchup against Georgia on Saturday at 5 p.m. in Memorial Gymnasium. That will be televised, I believe, on SEC Network, but I'll check on that before we get into the rest of this podcast. Uh, We're also going to touch on the fact that students are allowed back in Memorial Gym after their brief hiatus for the Tennessee and Kentucky games um, included in there where they were not allowed to attend but were allowed Uh, to remain in their dorms and on campus in Nashville, Tennessee. So uh, we've already talked that down. So that's just going to be a quick note, read off what they're doing. And then we're also going to do a quick recruiting update. I think next episode we'll be hoping to get into that a little bit more and kind of where we sit. But just overall, this class, 
where are we at? And Colin Smith, we've been talking with him and he should be joining the podcast again next week. And we also should be able to be putting out some pretty good video content with him. He sent over some highlights. So hopefully me and our staff member, Jacob Scholl, uh, can get on that and put out some good content for you guys. But before we get to all these headlines and the breaking news, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at door underscore report and Instagram door dot report. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our podcast is available on Anchor iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're at it, go ahead and give us a five-star review on iTunes. It's now time for breaking news. No matter what style you're going for, you can trust your flooring job to Alaco Hardwood Flooring. Take a walk through the woods in your home every day. Get your flooring job started today by logging on to alacohardwoodflooring.com or by calling 615-356-0303. Alaco Hardwood Flooring. Perfect floors, whatever your style. All right. I wish Billy was here to join me for this one, but there's no easy way to transition in, so let's just jump into it. Vanderbilt has been pretty bad. Not just pretty bad, really bad recently. They've definitely regressed from where they were at the beginning of the season. They don't seem to be quite as confident playing out there with the first half against South Carolina excluded from that. Um, they have had three straight losses, lost to Tennessee, of course, 68-60. to 60. We touched on that, that loss last podcast on episode 138. They also lost at Florida 61-42 to 42 and lost to South Carolina. It took a major comeback by the Gamecocks there in Columbia, and they've defeated the Commodores 70-61. to 61. And I'm not really sure which one of these losses is more disgusting. Florida, Vanderbilt was just horrible. They were awful all game. The offense put up 42 points. That's just not an offensive performance, no matter how good your defense is, that's going to get the job done against a Gator team that was just coming off a pretty tough loss there. So the, the Gators went on, of course, to build up the lead against Tennessee and pretty much do what Vanderbilt did and fall apart against Tennessee uh, following that win over Vanderbilt. But the Florida loss, there's not much to break down. They just played bad. They missed shots. Your leading scorer was Jordan Wright with seven points on two of eight shooting. That's not going to, you're not going to win with this team when Scottie Pippen Jr. has six points and he's really not contributing. He almost had more combined rebounds and turnovers than points. That's just not going to be an effective way to get a team that has struggles offensively and struggles shooting the basketball outside of Pippen. And you could say maybe Miles Studi. Outside of those two guys, this team struggles to shoot. And those two guys need to be taking more shots. Pippen has had real, real turnover issues. Not in this Florida game. He only had one turnover. But in that South Carolina game, he just seems to be trying to do too much. And to be completely honest, I can't blame him. You look around and he's having performances like he did against South Carolina, and consistently he's just not getting support from the other guys. He had 24 points, 8 of 17 shooting, not great, 1 of 4 from 3, not awesome, but he was 7 of 8 from the free throw line, 8 rebounds, 5 assists, 2 steals, and then we get to the turnovers, 7 turnovers, but 24 points. So right there, he's just being asked to do so much. He played 37 minutes. Only one other person on the team played over 30 minutes, and that was Jordan Wright with 31, Studi and Quentin Melora Brown, both sitting there at 30 minutes against South Carolina. But the way this game played out was a lot different than the box score may indicate. Uh, and, and the easiest way to get into it, just start at the beginning, start in the first half, because you can guess what happened against South Carolina. It's been what has happened with this team year in, year out for the last three to four years, scoring droughts. 
they consistently will have stretches where this team looks like it could potentially be an NCAA tournament bubble team. You saw that at the beginning of the first half. You saw it at the beginning of the second half there. You saw it in a lot of this South Carolina game outside of about an eight-minute stretch there uh, where South Carolina was able to uh, actually retake the lead against Vanderbilt. You saw what this team could be even without Rodney Rodney Chapman and Liam Robbins. I think that's why me and Billy have been so critical is in years past, yes, we weren't judging this team based on the wins and losses. And we understood that it was about how hard this team played because frankly, they were just not better than anyone they were playing in the SEC. They truly were the 14th out of 14th team in the SEC. And so it was a little bit easier to accept these losses somewhat similarly to Vanderbilt football. You can have the judgment there of the ETSU game, whatever may have you, but player for player, when when you really get down to it, Vanderbilt fans know that this Vanderbilt football team was not as good as their opponents. And for the most part, that's how it's been in Vanderbilt basketball. And it's been a mental adjustment for Commodore fans who are not used to that. They're not used to being a cellar dweller in basketball. It's really just always been just wait until basketball season, just wait until basketball season and then basketball to baseball. And then it's back to football. But this year, the last three, four years, that has not been the case And this team this year, why we have been so harsh is they are better than some of these teams. They're better than South Carolina. Player for player, they would probably on a neutral site be about a three-point favorite, two-point favorite. If they were fully healthy with Liam Robbins and Rodney Chapman, I would say they would be a six, seven-point favorite on the gambling line on a neutral site. So this team has some talent. Two of their starters are injured. And then you have that exacerbated by the fact that guys just haven't been playing well lately. But let's get into the game. They started it well, like I said, and a good open to the second. But they were up 11 to 4 at the 15 minute mark of the first half. So, in the first five minutes, they run 11 to 4 run. This is all going to be broken down. It can be broken down super easily into game stretches. So, we're at the 15 minute mark of the first half. Vanderbilt is leading South Carolina 11 to 4. They let South Carolina get back into the game. South Carolina is actually able to take a 17 to 13 lead over Vanderbilt at the 10 minute mark. So, in five minutes, South Carolina had gone on a 13 to 2 run. Vanderbilt had gone from scoring 11 points in the first five minutes. They then scored two points in the next five minutes of the game. And simultaneously, South Carolina, of course, went on a run. Vanderbilt's defense slipped a little bit. And South Carolina takes the lead 17-13 to at the 10-minute mark of the first half. But this team bounced back. They actually were able to be up going into halftime. They were up 30-26. to They'd gone on a 17-9 to run that last 10-minute stretch. So right there, you have Vanderbilt winning the first five minutes of the game 11-4. to South Carolina wins the next five minutes of the game, 13 to two. Then Vanderbilt wins the next 10 minutes of the game, 17 to nine. But Vanderbilt did not step on the throat of South Carolina when they had the opportunity. And that's where the second half shows. This team just doesn't know how to win. Me and Billy discussed it last podcast. People say that, and that sounds very mean, but that's not what I mean at all. I I don't mean it to sound condescending. This team does not know how to win. They have not done it consistently. Occasionally, you're going to win a game against Arkansas. You're going to win a tight game. But consistently, game in, game out, you haven't developed the habits or the confidence or from the players or the coaches to win consistently in these tight games and learn how to step on the throat of the opponent in the second half. So now we're getting into the second half. Vanderbilt up 30-26 to 26 over South Carolina, four-point lead, feeling good. Vanderbilt in the first minute comes out, gets up 35-26 to 26 in the first minute, sitting there great, thinking, okay, it's time to step on the throat of this inf- 
about evenly matched and or inferior South Carolina team, depending on what lens you're looking at, but at least an evenly matched game. Then the scoring drought kind of starts. 36 to 31 at the 15-44 mark. So the only field goal in the next three minutes of the game was Miles Studi hitting a three. But South Carolina didn't hit shots either. Vanderbilt was still up 36 to 31 at the 15-44 remaining in the second half. Then they were able to actually extend that lead out 42 to 33 at the 15 minute mark. They were sitting up nine. Then after a Studi jumper, Pippen layup, the drought really reemerged. Vanderbilt was sitting up 46 to 35 with 13 minutes and 28 seconds left in the second half, up 11 points to a South Carolina team that's not particularly good sitting there around that 10th, 11th, 12th spot alongside Vanderbilt, Georgia, so and Missouri. Then I don't know what happened. South Carolina went to kind of a high wing, kind of 3-2, 2-3 mix zone that was high arching and putting a lot of pressure on Vanderbilt, and Vanderbilt panicked, and they folded. They should have gone up in that time frame at the beginning when South Carolina wasn't hitting shots. South Carolina only scored nine points in the first six and a half minutes of the half. But Vanderbilt scored 16. And that's fine. You extend the lead out. But that this is where you put the hammer down. And Vanderbilt was unable to do it. Vanderbilt had no field goals from the 13-28 mark until Jordan Wright hit a desperation three at the end of the shot clock at the eight-minute mark. No field goals. They had one free throw from Quentin Melora Brown. And in that time frame, that Jordan Wright three at the eight-minute mark tied the game at 50-50. to But the seven minutes prior to that, South Carolina had gone on a 17-1 run. 17-1. I don't know how many games, basketball games you guys have watched, how many games in college basketball you have watched in the NBA, in high school, outside of the NBA, in high school and college, it is going to be almost impossible for a team to have a 17-1 run and still manage to win that game. And multiple times, Vanderbilt allowed South Carolina to go on these runs instead of when you start missing shots or the defense falls apart, South Carolina starts hitting shots, you play them even, or they win by two to four points. But basketball's broken down in these four-minute, eight-minute, 12-minute segments, kind of naturally by the TV timeouts throughout the game. It's a weird game of ebbs and flows, and some games can feel like they last two hours, some games can feel like they last an hour, and some games can feel like they last eight hours. This was one of those games that the clock could not run quickly enough. You just felt the game slipping away from that point, and unfortunately Vanderbilt allowed the game to slip away, and this loss was just disgusting. But at 245, South Carolina led 67-58. to At 2 minutes and 45 seconds remaining in that second half, South Carolina was up 9, 67-58. to I want to repeat that score just because it's mind-boggling what I'm going to say next. Keep in mind, Vanderbilt was up 11 at the 13:30 mark. In less than 11 minutes, South Carolina went on a 32 to 12 run. 32 to 12. This Vanderbilt team from the 13:30 mark of the second half to the two, two minutes and 45 seconds remaining scored 12 points. Even against South Carolina, you were not going to be able to win doing that. Now, the interesting part and the concerning part is South Carolina's zone gave Vanderbilt fits. And the offense was just repeatedly holding the ball, dribbling, not moving it. That is not how you beat a zone. You beat a zone with ball movement and spacing and having passes into that middle of the zone with kickouts for open threes. And Vanderbilt just felt like they were trying to run almost man offense against this zone. I know the zone 
from South Carolina did have some man principles and it was more of a matchup zone than a pure three, two or two, three. I understand all that. You're not playing in high school. You're playing the SEC, but it's still a zone and you still have to move the ball. And just too many times against zones repeatedly this season, even against less aggressive zones previously in the year, the ball sticks. The ball gets held. Jordan Wright pass from Scottie Pippen. Jordan Wright holds the ball for two seconds. Pass back to Pippen. Pippen holds the ball for six seconds. Just waiting on Quentin Malora Brown to get out there with the screen. Dribbling aimlessly. Drives. Then he passes out. Studi. Kick out to the corner. Then Jermaine Mann catches the ball. Holds it. Drives. Kick. And then you're shooting the ball with under five seconds to go in a desperation three situation. That seems to be the pattern that this team is developing against zone. And I don't know necessarily how you fix it. I'm not in practice day to day, but I would imagine that you can look at the statistics for Vanderbilt and say, this team is not a good offensive team. Stackhouse can have that moment and have that reality. They are a pretty damn good defensive team. I don't think you really need to do anything on that end of the court, but you did have some offensive rebounds from South Carolina that were pretty key in some pretty big moments, but that's just a size issue. You just don't have the depth. Jermaine Mann is playing his ass off. QMB is playing his ass off. Those guys are trying to rebound, but you have one true center on this entire roster in Quentin Moore Brown, and your backup center is Jermaine Mann, who's six foot six and plays hard. But the defense is doing what they can. The offense, uh, actually, on Ken Palm, I just have it pulled up here. The defense is ranked 53rd in the country in adjusted efficiency. In turnover percentage, they're 24th. In three point percentage defense, they're 37th. In steal percentage, they're 51st. In overall non-steal turnover percentage, they're ranked 23rd in the country defensively. So those are pretty good stats. They're about a top 50, top 60 team defensively. Not incredible, not bad, especially against some of the competition level that they've played against, even though it hasn't been amazing. But their offense is ranked 145th in the country. Their effective field goal percentage is 251st. They're 204th in the country on turno- in turnovers on offense. They're three, 284th in three-point percentage, shooting just 30.9% from three. But they're also 27th in three-point attempts compared to field goal attempts. So they are shooting the 27th most threes in the country. But they're making the 284th most percentage of those threes, if that made any sense. They're taking a lot of threes, and they're missing a lot of threes. That's not a recipe for success. This is the NBA offense that Stackhouse is bringing. I think with guys next year, which I'm very excited about, you have Malik Dia, Colin Smith, Lee Dort, Noah Shelby. Uh, Those guys coming in are going to allow Stackhouse to run a really similar or same offense, but it's going to look so much different. Basketball is so much more of an art. Basketball is like, we could use the quote from The Office, Michael Scott, basketball is like smooth jazz and football is like rock and roll. Okay, football is head on collision. X's and O's also combined with that where you have the most brutal sport, but it's also the most technical sport. So much can be controlled by the coaches, even though player talent obviously makes a difference. We've seen that in past years, but coaches can scheme their way to effectively win games because you can take away key players. You can hide your deficiencies better on the basketball court. I would say 80% of the game is determined completely before the coach even comes up with a game plan. 80% of the game is just if you put these five to eight guys out there in an intramural game, who would win with no coach on the sideline? And that's where you need to sit. 
And Stack, yes, he's had some issues. He's had some growing pains. I think his offense, especially against zone, is too stagnant and ball dri- or ball dribbling. That's not the right word. Dribble heavy, screen heavy, ball hold heavy against zone. But it's not on him. He's going to bring in talent next year. And if he comes in next year and has the same struggles, the same scoring droughts, the same inefficiency on offense, then I will be more on board on the fire Jerry Stackhouse train than literally anyone. But you can't sit here and tell me that you look at this current roster who, keep in mind, had Dylan DeSue transfer off of it, a former four-star, which Stack recruited. And Dylan DeSue, people keep pointing to that. I want to touch on this before I get to the rest of my point. Dylan DeSue, everyone keeps talking about him transferring to Texas. Bad look for Stackhouse. I can tell you based on when he when we were interviewing him, he had a Texas shirt in the background. He's from Texas. He's a Texas fan. He was offered his dream opportunity to transfer with no no lack of no eligibility loss and go play for a better team. And at the time, Pippen had declared for the NBA draft. So he's going to be coming back to a terrible, terrible team in Vanderbilt with no real hope for the next season. Or he could transfer to Texas with no penalty on a team that's competing a lot better than this Vanderbilt team in his mind before Pippen declared he was going to be coming back. They were going to compete better than Vanderbilt. And it's the school he grew up around and as a fan of his entire life. That was a unique scenario. I don't think he's leaving, and I could be completely wrong, but I don't think he's leaving because he hated Jerry Sackhouse. And I could be wrong. Obviously, I'm not Dylan DeSue. I don't know what's going on inside of his mind. But that felt like just the perfect storm of when a guy would transfer. And I can't really blame him. But keep in mind, Stackhouse brought in some transfers. He brought in two guys that would be starting. We've seen a little bit of one of them in Rodney Chapman, who transferred in from Dayton, a very, very effective secondary ball handler that allowed this offense to perform a lot better, including in that stretch that they went on where they were winning. Huh. Amazing how that works when Stack even has one of his guys back. All of a sudden, the world is right, and they're winning these games. And the offense looks better. Imagine this team with Liam Robbins, an extra 14 points a game from a 7-foot center and 8-10 to 10 rebounds. QMB can rotate in, keep Robbins fresh. Robbins, 25 to 30 minutes a game. QMB, 10 to 15. If you get in foul trouble from your post, you're not in immediate desperation mode, bringing in someone that's completely undersized. So be patient. If next season Jerry Stackhouse comes out and this Vanderbilt team comes out and they are not competitive, they're going to be sitting in the same spot that they are now, really not even being discussed as being extremely improved, even though I think they are going to beat their SEC win total from last year. Then we can talk about, is Jerry Stackhouse's seat really hot and is it time to move on? And I think my answer at that point would probably be, probably be yes. He will have the talent at that point. He will be in year four. He will have no more excuses. And this isn't even an excuse. Bryce Drew tried the one and done thing. Vanderbilt fans, you have to decide. Do you want to go from a 9-23 and team to getting better consistently over three to four years, which is what they're trying to do right now? Or do you want to be the one and done team like what happened with Bryce Drew? You put all your eggs in one basket. It doesn't work out. And then everything implodes. This all goes back to that. Stack is about to have his Bryce Drew class where Bryce Drew brought in Aaron Neesmith, Darius Garland, and Simi Shitu, and it didn't work out. Bryce Drew, or not Bryce Drew, Jerry Stackhouse is bringing in that class right now. Once he gets this class in, then we judge. 
and then we decide if his seat is hot. And that's all I really have to say on the uh, Jerry Stackhouse train right there. Right now, I think it's just time to hope this team improves and learn for the future here and maybe build a little bit of experience for some of these more talented younger guys like Shane Bizzoni that I think will play a little bit more and Miles Studi that I both will both at that I think both will play roles next season alongside that talented quad that they have coming in. But on to their upcoming matchup against Georgia. This is a huge game. I know it sounds dumb to say it's a huge game, but this Georgia team is bad. Vanderbilt's already beaten them. They have to beat them again. This is the definition of a must-win game for Vanderbilt. This season can spiral very, very quickly and very, very easily. And Georgia is a perfect opportunity to stop the bleeding. You always hear that phrase, this is the time to get a confidence-building win before you really hit the gauntlet of SEC play. Because after Georgia, you're at number 12, Kentucky, at number verse at home, number 19, LSU. Then you have Missouri. Then you have number 18, Tennessee, at Tennessee and Knoxville. Then you're at number one, Auburn. It doesn't get easier from here. That's why these early games were so key, and they have not performed particularly well against teams that they should have beaten. But you at least have to move to three and five right here with a win over Georgia. This is just a game you cannot lose. And unfortunately, Georgia is coming off a pretty big confidence-boosting win uh, against Alabama. I believe they won that game. I don't have it written down by about eight points. Um, let me see if I can find it. Yeah, 82 to 76. They actually beat Alabama. So they're coming off that as Vanderbilt is coming off three straight losses to Tennessee, to Florida. And of course, the one we've been discussing, the nine point loss, 70 to 61 to South Carolina in Columbia. But moving on from the basketball court back to the gridiron, we're going to do a little bit more of a recruiting update in detail uh, on the next episode, hopefully. But we're also going to possibly next week, not possibly at some point, for sure, we are going to have Colin Smith back on the podcast. But hopefully next week, if schedules work out, we'll be able to have him join. But if that is unable to happen, then I think we're going to kind of dig in a little bit more to this recruiting class and kind of discuss where they're sitting now after the Daniel Martin commit, but just the overarching score of where they're at. Unfortunately, Vanderbilt has moved to last place in the SEC like we knew would happen, like I'd been saying was going to happen throughout this entire year. But 14th in the SEC, 36th nationally. Now, let me repeat that for you. 14th in the SEC, last place in the conference, 36th in the entire country of 128 college football teams. That's amazing. That is mind-blowing. They are in the top 25% of teams, basically top 30% of teams overall. But they're sitting in last place in their own conference. And just keep in mind, there are 65 Power 5 schools. 65. Vanderbilt is sitting right about middle of the pack. And they are sitting in dead last in the conference. And it's not really even that close. Florida has lost a lot of their class. And they are well ahead of Vanderbilt. For example, Ole Miss, I believe, is two or three spots and they are 16 recruiting points or 15 recruiting points in the ranking system of the composite ranking system there on 24-7. They are 15 to 16 points above Vanderbilt, and that's Ole Miss. So I just, everybody needs to take into context, the SEC recruits different. I know that it just means more is repeated as almost kind of a joke now, but it is the, the, the conference's go-to motto, and there's a reason for that. This conference recruits in football unlike any other conference in the country, and it's not even close. So you're probably asking if that's the case, 
Where would Vanderbilt sit in the other Power Five conferences? That's a great question. Thankfully, I have the answer because I dug through all of it. But in the ACC, there are 14 teams. Right now, if Vanderbilt moved to that conference, they'd be sitting in fourth. Fourth place in the SEC. They'd be in between Virginia Tech above them and Miami below them. In the Big 12, which there are 10 teams in the Big 12. I don't like that. And there are 14 teams in the Big 10. That's the dumbest thing on the planet, but that's besides the point. 10 teams in the Big 12. Right now, Vanderbilt would be sitting 7th between Baylor and Texas Tech. 14 teams in the Big 10. They'd be sitting at ninth between Rutgers and Purdue. 12 teams in the Pac-12. Thank God that makes sense. Jesus. But they would be sitting at 4th right now in the Pac-12 between Utah and Colorado. And for a little bit more context, Ole Miss is 10th in the conference. 15 points above Vandy. They would be top four in every single Power Five conference in the country, ACC, Big 12, and Pac-12, and they would be ranked sixth in the Big 10. So only one other Power Conference would the SEC's 10th ranked team not be a top five ranked recruiting class, and that conference is the Big 10 where that team would be just outside its sixth. So what I'm saying is this class is good. This is a really good class for Vanderbilt, especially adding on the commit of Daniel Martin. But it's not going to get the job done in the SEC. Talent for talent right now, and that's how you have to judge it. Just over, Not all of these guys are accurately graded, and Barton Simmons and Clark Lee have their strategy, but you just have to take it right now what we know, which is the best source of information, is the 24-7 recruiting composite rankings. And right now, Vanderbilt is the worst team in the SEC. And right now, if that holds for the next four years, overall, they will probably be the least talented team in the conference still. But we know they've been the least talented conference or team in the conference in recent years, and that obviously hasn't worked out clearly with the record that we've had with Derek May the record that they have had with Derek Mason coming into Clark Lee two and ten. But it's a step in the right direction. The talent gap is closing. Instead of getting blown out by some of these teams, maybe it's a two to three score game now if you can do this for the next two years. Now, when you're playing against the teams like South Carolina, Missouri, Ole Miss, uh, when they're a little bit more down, maybe Lane Kiffin will move somewhere, hopefully, uh, so Vanderbilt doesn't have to play them repeatedly. But those games are more winnable if you can continue to recruit at this level with talent that can actually make plays. And you're seeing a lot of transfers out. I know there's a lot of concern about the amount of players transferring out, but all season, Vanderbilt fans, I did it, Billy did it, and Vanderbilt fans in general did it. We all complained that this roster was full of guys that even though they played hard and played smart, they were not SEC caliber football players. So why are, we, why are you now upset that these non-SEC caliber players are transferring out of the SEC program as Clark Lee and Barton Simmons and the rest of the staff try to bring in what they consider to be SEC caliber players? So it's a long road for Clark Lee and staff. It's a long road from where they were going 0-9 and having to cancel the game against Georgia, 2-10 with a loss to ETSU, it's not going to be changed overnight. And I think that Vanderbilt football fans know that. But Jerry Stackhouse was left the exact same situation with the exact same lack of talent after a zero-win year in conference. Exact same. So why the hell are we so much more patient understanding that in football? That's all I'm going to say. Next year is make or break for Sackhouse. Next year is not make or break for Clark Lee. He's got a few years till that happens. But 
stack. We've got to see something this year, just remain competitive. And then next season, extremely excited about the class of Noah Shelby, Lee Dort, Colin Smith, and Malik Diaz. So I'll leave you with something to look forward to, Commodore fans. As always, thank you for listening to the Door Report, powered by Alaco Alaco Floors. This is Will Byram signing off.